I'm Natalie Pearson from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sophie Chow, a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sydney School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry and the Charles Perkins Centre. Sophie, your work is very inclusive of the more than human. Could you tell us a little bit more about the idea of hunger as a multi-species phenomenon? Sure, absolutely. There's a pervasive discourse about a constant and insatiable sense of hunger, and this hunger is you know, experienced by Marind, but also by the other than human beings with whom they share common descent from ancestral spirits. A large part of the reason for this you know, attribution or extension of hunger to plants and animals is really based on what Marind people are seeing happening to their kindred species as the forest disappears, as the rivers are being contaminated, as air pollution and haze um, aggravates and so on. Um, many of the species that once roamed wild now find themselves stuck between you know, either burning forests or monocrop concessions where they can find very little to eat. Um, plants wilt, animals starve. Animals that do roam into these privatized concessions are often uh, hunted down, shot, captured by the workers, and then skinned and sold as tourist ornaments or keychains and so on. So they are completely repurposed in a very sort of commodified kind of way, which very much ran- runs counter to the respect and reverence um, that these uh, non-human beings uh, merit. Hunger is also interestingly more than human in a very, very different sense. And by that, I mean that many Marins talk about a whole range of other entities feeling hunger. These entities include things like roads, cities, and oil palm itself. So why is oil palm hungry? Well, from what Marins see around them, this is a plant that is constantly hungry for land. It seems to be proliferating endlessly and relentlessly. It keeps, as Marin say, eating the land. It saps up the waters of the rivers. It never seems to be full. It's it's a greedy, greedy, relentlessly insatiable kind of plant, right? So there's something about the actual behavior of this cash crop which in which Marin read a kind of sense of hunger. The road, too, is described as hungry. Why? Well, the road, too, eats the forest. To make way for a road, you have to cut down this biodiverse environment. And the road also eats people. Marin used this expression to talk about all the indigenous community members who travel to the city or to Jakarta by the road, and they never come back, Mm. right? What Mm. happened? Are they still in the city? Has the road eaten them? There's a sense that this this kind of modern infrastructure in in many ways sort of devours or consumes the being who take the risk of taking the road to places, a better somewhere, a better elsewhere. Interestingly, of course, this is that there's also all kinds of uh, really quite worrying sides to the road. So prostitution is now in the rise in Merauke, mm-hmm. in large part driven by the military presence and the growing you know, worker population. So there's growing uh, prostitution. And people also talk about you know, women selling their bodies as women being eaten by greedy, you know, voracious foreign others, right? So there's, it's a term, it's a concept that is, you know, hunger is physical, it's material, but it's also hugely symbolic and metaphorical to talk about all other forms of um, relentless consumption uh, and the kind of deprivation that this kind of relentless consumption by some parties and not others causes among indigenous communities. And of course, these um, monocrop plantations, particularly oil palm, are being used to feed the insatiable consumption of uh, the rest of the world. And there's almost no one who can say that their life is oil palm free. It's found in products throughout the household. We've stopped eating Nutella in our household, which is a big sacrifice for our little girl. But of course, palm oil is found in soap and it's found in shampoo and it's found in so many other 
products that are feeding our insatiable desire to consume. Yes, mm. absolutely. Recently, an anthropologist called Michael Tossig, who's working on oil palm plantations in Colombia, described oil palm as the metamorphic sublime. It's a substance that is constantly transforming. It's chameleonic. It camouflages under some 300 different compound names. Mm-hmm. It has one of the most elusive and serpentine supply chains of any commodity. And as you said, it is absolutely omnipresent and it's practically impossible to boycott. So there is, of course, as you r- very rightly point out, this profound paradox at play here, where a plant that's been grown grown in the name of national food security and global food sovereignty is in fact leading to profound food insecurity on the ground. Sophie, could you tell us, you're very focused on the Marind, what do their experiences of hunger tell us about the broader situation in Marauke and indeed in West Papua? Mm. From these very localised experiences and discourses of hunger, one can certainly extrapolate to identify a whole range of broader socio-economic and geopolitical dynamics that impinge upon the particular locale of Merauke. The first is that what, what is really clear from the research is that we have conflicting kinds of hungers at play here. We have the hunger for forest foods, but we also have the hunger for modern foodways, rice, instant noodles, and so on. That, to me, speaks to ongoing tensions and ambivalence among many indigenous West Papuans over the lure of capitalist modernity, of development as it is promoted and dictated by the Indonesian government, the kind of hopes, new futures, different identities that development promises, and at the same time, the kind of loss that such development can incur. And that's a constant, it's a perennial conundrum for many West Papuans, this push and pull between custom and modernity. The second thing I think that Marin's experiences of hunger can tell us about the broader situation in Merauke is this idea that gastrocolonialism in West Papua or the imposition of foreign foodways by foreign others uh, speaks to a much broader process of the violation of self-determination. One doesn't have to bring up the right of political self-determination. One can look much more closely at the right to food, the right to well-being, the right to health, the right to religion and so on. There's a whole sort of bundle of rights that unfortunately are being very much neglected or undermined under Indonesia role, and this is something that Papuans continue to protest to this day, as we've seen in recent social movements uh, in, across the region. So this lack of self-determination in the context of food, I think, speaks to a much broader sense of lack of self-determination for Papuans as a people. I think also, you know, the kind of suffering, the, the anxiety raised by hunger, I mean, running out of food is a profoundly it is a very, very existential sort of crisis. Uh, and I experienced this in the field myself when there's this horrific sort of situation where the very little food that was available, often I would be the one who would get to eat it. I was the one that the people would offer it to because I was the guest, right? And my responsibility then, after eating this food, was to go and tell the story, right? That was responsible eating. Very different from the way we understand it in our part of the world where it's about ethical choices. There is, well, you eat what little food we have, and not you that you tend your your responsibility to go and tell the story well and let people know what's happening here, right? But there's a big there's a huge amount of fear and anxiety about the future. And what happens to the kids who can't be fed today, right? What what will happen to future generations of Marind? In what sense is the sort of very severe food insecurity possibly going to lead to some kind of genocide, you know, or the actual disappearance of a whole peoples? There are ongoing there's a much broader context of rumors of, you know, potential genocides in West Papua, which are you know, legitimate in some angles and less in others. Um, but I think certainly this idea, of th- this reality of food sec- insecurity for many Papuans is not so much of a surprise because they believe that the government really only cares about the land and the resources. It's not really about the people. So whether or not they're fed or not is not really a priority. So in that kind of context, in what way can we really be pushing for policy changes and new governance mechanisms when in fact it seems to be the resources that matter rather than the people who have traditionally owned them? So there's a lot of fear about the future and fear about the continuity of Papuans you know, as a people in the context of these much bigger sort of forms of structural violence. 
I do want to ask you how you cope with these issues of fear and, and these very difficult issues of dispossession and destruction that you're, you're dealing with in your research. But before I ask you that, could you first tell us how Indigenous notions of health and well-being can inform or respond to or perhaps even remedy these top-down approaches? Thanks for asking that question. Um, I'm grateful because it's a big part of the research project that I'm uh, starting to work on at the moment. I'm very much hoping for it to be to have applied value in the sense that it can contribute to reforms in the kinds of policies that are um, being put together when it comes to food governance and food security. There are a whole range of indigenous philosophies of food that I think we could really draw from and capitalize to inform um, the sort of top-down modes of food governance that we're seeing um, today in Indonesia and beyond. The first is this idea that, you know, Marin themselves very much are proponents of, that food is holistic. So it's never just about nutrients and particular food groups or food types you know, talk about vitamins or proteins, you talk about the relationship between these different food types, food groups, and so on, right? So there's a very sort of holistic sense of looking at food as an ecology of substances that together come together to offer not just nutrition, as you were saying, but nourishment in a much more sort of comprehensive, collective sort of sense. The fact that for Marind, food matters not just in terms of what food is, but where it comes from and who provides it, I think is also really important in terms of cultivating a sense of respect for the food that we eat and the food that we waste. It might not change the way these supply chains work and operate, but at least some sort of awareness and a sort of reverence and respect and sense of responsibility towards the other than human species and the humans involved in the production of those foods, how these other than human beings are part and parcel of the actual substance we consume, I think is really important in terms of cultivating an awareness and a kind of collective consciousness of where the food we eat comes from and at whose expense. So that, I think, is a really important, perhaps more philosophical way of thinking about food in everyday life. I think food governance policies really need to capitalize on this idea that food is deeply about identity, people's sense of identity. And by that, I'm not suggesting that identities don't change or that they're static and that, you know, indigenous Marwan will and always eat forest foods. Prefer, of course, cultures are constantly changing the dynamic. The question is whether these changes happening in a top in a bottom up way and whether they are in line with the kinds of aspirations, hopes and desires of the peoples um, within these particular kinds of food ways. So I think, you know, pointing to this link between food and identity is really important when it comes to the sort of sometimes more sanitized language of, of policy and governance. The idea that what counts as a good diet, what counts as being healthy, what counts as well-being might differ according to culture. Again, something which I think is really, really critical to incorporate in a policy sort of perspective and that can operate in terms of national cultural sort of norms and values but you can also work your way down to across the whole range of ethnic groups minorities indigenous communities that one finds across the global south and elsewhere the issue of course of how to raise indigenous voices to national and international platforms remains a big issue um, simply in terms of access Um, certainly the communities that i work with have had very little opportunity to voice their philosophies of food at these sorts of higher level platforms. NGOs are doing really important work in terms of trying to facilitate that dialogue and that conversation. But here we're talking much more about sort of ongoing material resource and time constraints and that these very remote communities um, face. And finally, I think one of the biggest um, lessons that I certainly learned from Marind is thinking about food in relationship to the environment. Uh, we're currently living through the sixth mass extinction or the Anthropocene. And 
we have to think about the ways in which the food ways that we have become that we have adapted to and the sort of ecological degradation that are, we are seeing across the world are in fact profoundly linked. And what is it about changes in our food ways that could help address the environmental crisis and vice versa? So I think bringing ecological concerns into conversation with food and nutritional concerns as part of a much broader sort of, I suppose, planetary health notion would be really, really critical towards achieving much more holistic sort of food policy and governance practices. Mm. That's a good point to turn to my question about care, I guess, because we've been talking about care and respect and reciprocity within community and also about these concepts in a more global sense. So I'd like to look at you as an individual, Sophie, and ask you what practices of care you follow for yourself to make sure that uh, you can do justice to the stories that are being told to you. Thanks for that question, Natalie. There are several answers I can give to this question. One of the biggest challenges for me coming back from spending a year and a half in Merauke was precisely that question of, if my responsibility is to tell these stories, how do I do that well? And how do I tell the stories in ways that do justice to the lived, fleshy experience and suffering, but also hope, resistance and resilience of the peoples that I work with? It took me a very long time to actually conclude that the best way to tell the stories was to simply tell the stories that I had heard in the field. In anthropology, there is always a tendency to theorize, to conceptualize ethnographic material, and that's certainly an important part of the work we do as anthropologists. But there was certainly a point where I decided that instead I would adopt both an epistemological and an ethical stance of letting the stories speak for themselves. And that, in fact, turned out to be some of the richest work I think I've done, and the work that I look back and that that I read with pleasure, because they are stories, fleshy lived experiences, as told, as recounted, as elaborated, as fleshed out by the people whom I have had such a great privilege to work with for the last four years. So story work or storytelling, I think, is not just something we go to study. We don't just go study indigenous people's stories. We should actually be using their stories as a methodology, a principle of research in the way we write, think, and carry forth research into the applied world. On a more personal front, I mean, there are two practices that certainly have helped me cope um, on a more personal level with certainly the hardships that come with doing fieldwork in such a politically volatile part of the world. One was bushwalking. Marin taught me to listen to the forest. They taught me that the forest is the best teacher that can be, that when you get hurt, lost in the forest, it's still trying to teach you something, and that the best thing to do, as they often told me, is to stop thinking and start walking, which is what we did for most of my fieldwork. If we wanted to talk about a plant, you know, I had all my questions. You had to go and check out the plant. You had to go hang out with that plant. If you wanted to talk about sago, you had to go to the sago grove. If you wanted to talk about the river, you had to swim down the river. Mm -hmm. So it's a deeply, deeply sort of immersed bodily way of understanding the landscape, which is far removed from the often very abstracted conceptual kind of work that academic writing and research requires of us. And so for me, continuing that practice of walking the forest and learning from the forest here in Australia was really, really important terms of, in some ways, reanimating me, and I mean that really in the sense of entering a sentient animated ecology, and to remember all those very profound lessons that I learned from Marind about the ways in which the sentient environments that surround us are not only critical to our well-being and health, but also that they are a profound source of wisdom, knowledge, and, and of dignity, in fact. Finally, I think playing the piano has been a real source, a real salvation to me throughout my PhD research and continues to be now as I undertake postdoctoral um, work. I started playing the piano when I was very young. My brother is a violinist. We often play together. So when I play, it brings back memories of my childhood, uh, of my little brother, who I, whom I miss very much. And uh, it allows me to sort of, in some ways, 
not so much escape um, some of the pressures or stresses that come with academic research, but more to take a different perspective on that research to find joy in through the medium of sound, of music. Sound, again, was a critical part of my research, learning to listen to the sounds of birds, learning to follow the sounds of birds as you walk through the forest, which is a key way through which Marwin come to know space is through sounds birds, water, wind, and so on. So connecting again with these communities through very different kinds of sounds, certainly. I was electric piano uh, has been really, really um, therapeutic uh, as much as intellectually stimulating and continues to be. Sophie, thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to talk to you today. And I believe that we might be lucky enough to hear one of your piano pieces, if you'd be so kind as to play for us. But until then, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Natalie. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.